Welcome to CTV Question Period. Happy New Year to everyone. Hope you had a safe and joyful holiday season, even if it was sadly Omicron by the new restrictions. Look, today we have our unrestricted special, our all scrum edition of the program. We look ahead to the biggest storylines of the new year. What will shape politics in 2022? Who will be the big players? What will the impact be on your lives? We'll cover it all from the economy and inflation to foreign affairs. But of course, we have to start with the unwanted guest, the guest that comes over when not wanted and breaks into your home and stays too long and has a nasty criminal record of sadly killing people and then wrecks your place. Yes, it's COVID and its latest pandemic incarnation, Omicron. The new Omicron variant has led to a surge in cases in Canada and around the world. It's triggered warnings against non-essential international travel, along with a rush to administer booster shots to the entire country. What do we learn about COVID-19 in 2021 that can carry on into the Omicron 2022? And how will the pandemic impact the politics around government supports and spending? To answer all that, the Scrum is here. We have today with us Bob Fife, the Globe and Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief, the Toronto Star's Stephanie Levitz, and our special guest for this part of the show is Dr. Catherine Smart, the CEO of the Canadian Medical Association. First of all, Happy New Year to all of you. Great to see you all. I hope your loved ones are well. But here we are, Dr. Smart. I got to start with this. Uh, we all thought we'd be through this. We are far from through it. In fact, we're in the midst of it again. Um, just give us a view on on Omicron. People keep asking all of us, when is this darn thing going to be over? When is it over? Or is this stuff just here to stay? I think nobody feels like that more than healthcare professionals, you know, as we're facing Omicron and just how contagious it is and knowing there are still so many Canadians not yet vaccinated and you look at something that's as contagious as Omicron, numbers really just increasing exponentially. It's highly concerning for the health system. You know, we, we feel that vaccines will likely protect against severe disease, but with the amount of people that are going to contract it, it's, it's quite certain there will be serious pressures on our system yet again. Um, and I think that's very concerning going into January and February, what that's going to mean for healthcare providers, what it's going to mean for hospital capacity, and what it's going to mean for ongoing backlogs for other Canadians that haven't been able to access the care they need throughout this pandemic. Yeah, and, and you can't thank healthcare workers enough for what they've done, Steph. It, and it's exhausting. I, I know in your family you got healthcare workers as well, Steph. Um, how does this emergence of Omicron and the vicious emergence of, of Omicron, how does it sort of recalibrate the entire political calculus of 2022? What does it reshape the year? The idea, you know, that we were told by political leaders, right, were that vaccines were the way out of this. The idea was given, I mean, you said it yourself in the introduction, Evan, this was supposed to be over. And I think perhaps, you know, it's easy, hindsight's 2020, right, that it wasn't actually going to ever be over until every single person in the globe was fully vaccinated against COVID-19. That is not is so far away from happening that we have to wonder at what point do we make a collective mental shift to living with COVID-19, stop focusing on the case numbers per se, stop focus more on you know, severe illness, hospitalizations, how can we deal with that? How can we build an excess capacity to our healthcare system? And where this becomes a political problem, just to put the political lens on it, is that the issue of healthcare is very much a provincial jurisdiction. In 2022, we're supposed to start having negotiations with the provinces for a healthcare spend. They want a ton more money. The federal government has not quite signaled its willingness to come to the table on that. 
And so, you know, how far are they willing to go to address the down effects of COVID in the long term? Yeah, and Bob, uh, Justin Trudeau's second term as prime minister defined by the pandemic. His third term is starting off being defined by the pandemic. Everything from the economy, the spend, the healthcare situation, travel warnings, uh, and it's contributing to everything. How does this, what are you looking for in terms of this new pandemic, this new Omicron version of the pandemic? How does this play out? Uh, politically in the new year? Well, I mean, politically, it could take, uh, as the economic statement said, there was great uncertainty about the economy uh, because of the pandemic. And so we could have much slower economic growth, a big hit to the economy, which would be uh, not very good uh, for all, particularly for businesses that are already suffering. There's the whole issue of the healthcare system with Dr. Smart and Stephanie have uh, talked about, which is very, it's on the brink to begin with. And there is real need for uh, significant amounts of money, but even the money coming into the system right away is not going to fix the problem of burnt out healthcare workers. We can't get enough nurses fast enough and other healthcare professionals into the system. Yeah, I, I don't even think we've had even the first inkling of the long-term impacts of that stuff. Dr. Smart, let's go back to that. What are the healthcare need? Because resilience is something that we've talked about. But just on a practical side, Canadians are going to say, look, how bad can this Omicron be? I'll get a booster shot and Canada will be fine. Is this the future we're going to keep getting booster shots and booster shots and new variants? Is this what the healthcare system has to be built to do? I think that's a great question, and I think the answer is no one truly knows. I mean, I think what is clear is three doses of the COVID vaccine are very protective against severe illness and hospitalization, and that's critical to protecting our health systems. I think what, what's so difficult is this is an evolving situation. You know, no one can predict the future when it comes to what exactly COVID is going to do, and I think that's what's so difficult psychologically for the country and for healthcare professionals is none of us know exactly where we're going to be three, six, nine months from now but i do think we have to continue to use the knowledge we have which is being fully vaccinated which right now means three doses if you're over 18 will protect you from being hospitalized wearing a good fitting mask properly when you're indoors you know trying to limit social gatherings encouraging those hanger honors who aren't yet vaccinated to get vaccinated um improve our ventilation in our public spaces. These are things that are gonna keep us safe as we move forward, keep us functioning, and keep the healthcare system protected. Yeah, uh, this was the symbol of 2021, these masks. It's still mm -hmm. gonna be the symbol of 2022. That, that's just the reality. Steph, yeah. but it, it has had a divisive political uh, line. We saw it in the federal election of 2021. Uh, uh, vaccine mandates have been difficult politically for the conservatives, it became a dividing line. How does the pandemic a reshape the political landscape from a liberal conservative NDP in terms of what they do, what they support. So one of the interesting things, as, as the doctor just alluded to, is this notion of what does fully vaccinated mean anymore, right? And the question of vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, something that was interesting in, in the fall economic update, Evan, was that the funding that was set aside to help manage vaccine mandates for travel domestically on airlines, trains and planes and so on, that was set aside over a number of years. Yes. It's, it's not set to expire next year. So clearly the government sees a long-term need for this and that's gonna to continue to become divisive. And it's gonna be divisive, especially if Omicron, as it spreads, the vaccinated um, are getting it as well as the unvaccinated. And then it becomes, you have a coterie of people who say, see, told you, it didn't work. And the reality is, nope, vaccines still in fact are working because they're keeping people out of the hospital and they're keeping them from dying. And that has to be the thing that we talk about. And I, you know, I referenced it before, 
move from this focus, this political focus on case numbers to the severity of the right. illness. The conservatives remain, I think, mired in political problems on this. There is a faction of their base that bristles not so much about the vaccine science, but they do about the, the mandate and the idea of government intrusion into their lives. Yeah, and Bob, and we don't know where, how that, that marinates with restrictions and with new government requirements on, on new boosters. Uh, does that fuel that anger that we saw in the election that Steph's talking about. Yeah, look, it's, that's going to persist, but let's remember 85 to 90% of Canadians uh, will be vaccinated, want to be vaccinated. There's only a small percentage of Canadians who are anti-vaxxers, but it does require politicians of all parties at, at, at all levels and you know the Jason Kennedys of the world and the federal conservatives to set an example. Just before uh, you know the house broke for the uh, for the Christmas break, um, the conservatives uh, decided that they would all meet together in caucus, whereas the liberals and the New Democrats right. said, "No, we're meeting virtually." That a terrible signal to send. Conservatives are saying they're going to travel internationally over the Christmas holidays, uh, whereas the NDP and the liberals are saying, "No, please do not travel." Uh, unless it's for uh, essential reasons outside the country. They're setting a terrible, terrible example for Canadians. All right, uh, I got to uh, leave it there. Uh, Dr. Smart, before we go, um, just give us a sense, just so we can have a little bit of a moment, because I know you're in Whitehorse, what the temperature there is? Minus 32, Evan. See, and when you say that, I just want to cut back to Bob and Steph and that, that grin that they could not suppress. And it's one of those moments where they say, see, thank God I'm in Ottawa. And that doesn't happen that often, so that's great. Uh, no, we wish you and your family well, Dr. Smart. And first of all, I know healthcare workers have gone through it. We all do. And, and, and the country owes healthcare workers a great debt for 2021. And we will in 2022 again. So thank you for your work and your patience. Thank Coming you. up. Inflation has grown to be the biggest political challenge of the new year. Inflation edged up to an 18-year high, 4.7%, according to Stats Canada. We all know this story. Groceries are more expensive, gas, homes, everything's going up in price. Now, the opposition has seized on this issue. The Conservatives blame the Liberals' COVID spending measures for boosting inflation, even though they supported most of the COVID programs and proposed bigger spending in their own election platform. Still... The Liberals blame the global supply chain and COVID, but a government is essentially a fire department. They may not start the fires, but the citizens expect them to put them out. And this inflation fire is still burning. One response, well, the finance minister, Krista Freeland, released her fiscal update in mid-December, which projects a $144.5 billion deficit in 2022. But there wasn't much there on the cost of living outside of their childcare promise that Canadians saw during the federal election. So how will the issue of inflation and cost of living play out politically in 2022? Should the government slim down even further the pandemic benefits? Should the government rein in the spending or continue the supports because of Omicron? To answer all that, the Scrum is back. Bob Fife is back, the Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief. So is the Toronto star Stephanie Levitz. And our special guest this round is our friend Kevin Page, former parliamentary budget officer and president of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracies. Uh, great to have you here, Kev, joining uh, our panel. And Happy New Year and to you and yours. Um, Biggest economic challenge in your mind facing the government and the country this year? Is it still going to be uh, inflation and cost of living? Yeah, it's, I mean, inflation, cost of living is, is one big challenge. I think um, the sustainability of the economic recoveries we deal with COVID, 
is, is another big challenge. And uh, yeah, and I think we're betting a lot that, you know, that the economy is going to continue to recover. Uh, like on the inflation issue, I think it's clear that the Liberals, you know, they've been struggling with uh, their narrative on affordability. Bob, uh, what, what's your sense of that? Um, how, how this plays out politically for them? And do they need a better answer in the new year and this year than just, look, childcare is coming and, uh, you know, we have a, a housing plan of $4 billion, but is that enough? Well, look, obviously the pandemic is going to be the overriding issue uh, for the government at all levels. Uh, if the pandemic uh, persists and it gets worse, this is going to be a serious problem for the Canadian economy and economies around the world. Uh, the other issue is inflation. Um, you know, the, the economic statement from Ms. Freeland did not address inflation. She was still spending, spending, she's leaving uh, inflationary uh, inflation to the Bank of Canada to deal with. And we've already seen in the United States that the Fed is going to probably move in the new year uh, to uh, increase interest rates. And presumably this is going to happen as well. And the other issue, it seems to me, uh, Evan, is that uh, this government does not seem to have any ideas, uh, at least now, uh, to encourage uh, economic growth through the private sector. Uh, and, to, and by doing so, raising Canadian living standards. And they just have been a miss on that. Conservatives hammering the Liberals on this. Uh, as you've heard, this has really turned into some kind of political theater between Pierre Polyever, the finance critic, and the finance minister, uh, Christian Freeland. How challenging is this issue of inflation and affordability, not only for the government, but how does it cut for the opposition? Well, you know, the, the Conservatives are, are pushing away at a narrative, of course, Evan, as you've alluded to, that this is all the government's fault. And what the government's answer seems to be is, no, it's not. And so it's a nyan, nyan, meh, meh kind of fight that they're having. But the problem is, is that the federal government is also not acknowledging, in a meaningful way, I think, that the reason they have some extra money that they set aside in the, in the, fiscal, the fall economic statement and that also they've been spending some on some new programming is because of inflation. Yeah. With taxes going up, the government revenues go up, oil goes up. And so it's quite hard to sort of understand that, oh, so my grocery bills are going up and you're just gonna spend more and not help bring my grocery bills down, regardless of whether what the government can do to bring the grocery bills down. You know, they've talked a lot about supply chain issues. They wanna have a summit in the new year. This is a government that consistently wants to think about problems as opposed to implementing solutions for these problems and accepting responsibility sometimes when there is some responsibility on their shoulders here. Well, Kev, what levers do, does the government have on this, on this issue? I understand on the monetary policy side, the Bank of Canada can increase interest rates that will have a you know, countervailing impact on the inflation. I understand that. What about on the fiscal side, the government side? What levers do they have to deal with this? Yeah, so fiscal policy, you don't have a lot of levers to deal with the inflation issue. They're, they're, they're blunt levers for the most part. Obviously, you'd, you don't want fiscal policy to be too expansionary, too stimulative. And as, you know, as Bob said, you, 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 the government needs to make the shift from uh, cons consumption to investment. So we should see more of that growth strategy that Bob talked about in the 2022 budget. I think like the, the government in some ways... You know, again, back to communications, they're struggling with uh, how, you know, the, with their plan. Effectively, what the government did was put a lot of money into the economy in 2020. So, like household net savings, disposable income savings rates, they're all higher now than what they were in a pre-COVID period. So, consumers are actually in pretty good shape on average to deal with this higher inflation. But again, but you know, they're taking the heat from the conservatives. 
And I'm, you know, I would, wouldn't want to have Stephanie as uh, leader of the official opposition because her arguments are quite strong. Um, but you know, they, for effectively, the government's saying is like we're out of bullets right now. We've got to taper these kind of programs, so they're going to they're going to struggle. And then there's the housing issue again, really hard for the federal government to have a material impact, Bob, on housing. It's such a massive market. And then, by the way, in the new year, they may have other spending. They may, you know, the provinces are still clamoring for massive health care transfers. Uh, the spending may not be over. What are you looking for from an economic story in 2022? Well, you're absolutely right on that. We have uh, negotiations that are coming with the, with the uh, provinces on health transfers, and they are going to need more money. The health care system in this country is, uh, is in very serious uh, shape. Uh, it was before the pandemic, and it's gotten worse. Uh, and, you know, there's burnout. There's just a real need to uh, hire more people and pay our health professionals more money. But the whole issue of, of their $78 billion, Evan, of, of liberal election promises, a lot of that, none of that money was, uh, was uh, accounted for in the economic statement. But we're all being told you can watch for uh, a lot of that spending to come in uh, when, they, uh, when the budget comes down, which will probably be earlier this year. Uh, and we'll, and a lot of that spending was again to encourage consumption, not to stimulate a private sector economic growth. This government does not seem to have an understanding of the private sector, and that's where wealth comes from. Uh, okay, Steph, biggest economic story that you might be looking for in 2022? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I think it just becomes the cost of living question, and can the the political argument be at all addressed effectively by the Liberal government? Um, and will the opposition continue? in their way um, to sort of torque the issue a bit extreme, make it resonate in Canadians' heads in a way that's you know, playing a bit fast and loose with the facts around inflation. But cost of living, we're heading into the Ontario election this year too, and I think that yeah. there, there is room for that election to dominate the national political landscape in a way with the, the, the largesse of the Ontario economy. Some of the things that Doug Ford is trying to do and the fight that he might be setting up with Justin Trudeau over things like Bob alluded to, healthcare spending and some others. All right, I got to leave it there. Kevin Page, first of all, uh, happy new year to you, sir. Always just an absolute honor to have you on the program. With the past is never dead. It's never even passed, as the great writer William Faulkner once said. And for Canada, which has long ignored the horrific tragedy, the cultural genocide of the residential schools, as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission called it, the past is very much now part of the present and the future. The past literally emerged from the ground after the discovery of thousands of unmarked graves at former residential institutions. That recovery eventually led to the first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. But it is far from over. Of course, the federal government also pledged to set aside $40 billion for Indigenous child welfare to settle a long-standing case. But the process has been fraught with mistrust. Can Justin Trudeau rebuild trust in a file that he has always said is his most important? What would a papal apology finally mean to residential institution survivors? What steps towards reconciliation will we see in 2022? The Scrum is returning to talk about that. Bob Fife from the Globe and Mail, the Ottawa Bureau Chief. The Toronto Star's Stephanie Levitz is here, and our special guest for this round is the former Assembly of First Nations National Chief, Perry Belgard. Um, first of all, Happy New Year to you, Perry. Uh, great to have you back on the show with Steph. And Bob, it was a traumatic year on reconciliation, uh, the, the discovery of the, of, of the unmarked graves. And, and I know this has been a long walk towards reconciliation. What are we going to see in 2022? What are you looking for in this new year, Perry? Well, again, Happy New Year to you, Evan, and uh, all the team that's on this call and to, to all the people listening. 
2022 is a new year. Reconciliation, I believe, is embraced by uh, all people in Canada. All Canadians are getting it. You know, 215, uh, the, uh, the, I won't call, call it the discovery, but the uncovering of the unmarked graves. Yes. And there's 130 plus residential school sites in Canada. So the ongoing research, the commemoration, the ceremony, the respect, you know, uh, trying to put names to each of those graves is going to be key. And then a monument, but it's all to facilitate healing. And uh, that's, that's part of it. Uh, the secondary part is going forward. You know, the, the federal government has budgeted $40 billion, uh, $20, $20 billion to, to address the, the past wrongs and discrimination uh, in the child welfare system. And then $19.7 billion as well to fix a system that's broken with 40,000 First Nation children in foster care. So things moving forward, definitely learning from the past, but moving forward to fix a system that's broken in Canada during 2022 embracing reconciliation is, is, is going to be key for healing for all of us. Yeah, Steph, Steph, how do you see this issue unfolding? Because I think Perry's exactly right. There's this uh, $40 billion now over the next 10 years, but $16 billion actually allocated for this year to settle some of those issues. Uh, but, uh, but we all knew it was in the Truth and Reconciliation report that there were these unmarked graves. Uh, and that story's not going away. They're going to keep coming. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know this sounds perhaps a little simplistic, but let's break it down. There's truth and there's reconciliation, and we're moving forward on both of those paths at the same time. The truths that have been so long known to Indigenous communities in Canada and First Nations about what happened to their ancestors, those are their truths, and now they're becoming Canadians' truths as a whole. And then with that truth, I, I know I sound cliché, but we move along on reconciliation. And I'll say this, Evan, I mean, one of the things, setting aside the Prime Minister's decision to go to Tofino on the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, but to watch my kids go to school on that day and to come home full of learning, even though they're small, full of learning, full of awareness, full of information, and full of a desire for change, that was a meaningful day for me. I was never taught any of this in school. My kids are now. And so I really hope that we can seize upon this moment as an educational moment going forward. Yeah, I would say for my kids it was the same, Steph. That day was an extraordinary day to see school kids across the country uh, in orange and learning about this in, in a very deep and me more <coughs> meaningful way than certainly our generation ever got a shot to do. Bob, challenges ahead for the federal government on this file. Well, just uh, I want to get back on the whole re reconciliation. When the graves were discovered, I was at my sister's place where my nieces and nephews were there, and they were uh, shocked. They had not been taught about any of this in school, and they were questioning why me and other parents had not insisted on this happening. And I do think that part of reconciliation is having our education system not do it on just one day, but they are courses that are taught so in the history courses, so we know uh, how First Nations people were treated uh, from the time that basically settlers came here until now. And then what we need is concrete stuff. Yes, there's government can provide money and they're doing so but there needs to be much more than that we need to get uh, make a concrete difference in people's lives they need to have the jobs they need to have some of the they need the economic benefits of that those are the kind of concrete measures we have to do not just give money but provide them with real economic a real economic stake in canada economic can i jump in there evan just to, to play on bob's words uh, he's absolutely right about education awareness. And so the curriculums have to be changed in every province and territory across Canada, right from kindergarten to grade 12, to teach about residential schools, to teach about treaties and inherent rights and Aboriginal rights and title, and the impact of the Indian Act, which we, we still have to move beyond here to reconstitute ourselves as nations within a nation here in Canada. 
Those things have to be taught. So that's a very strong point. And the children get it. You know, I've always said before, the best story of Canada has yet to be written. And it's going to be our children and grandchildren that write it. And they're getting it. So that's important on the education awareness piece. And as well, his comment about uh, closing the educational gap, the housing mm -hmm. gap, the infrastructure gap, dealing with the boil water advisories are all things, but linked to economic self-sufficiency. And so Bob, is, Bob, you're bang on talking about the need to get involved in the economy in a very substantive way. Um, you can't talk about self-determination, self-government until you start talking about economic self-sufficiency. And, and that's all about sharing equally in the land and resource wealth and having an equitable distribution of that right across this land. Steph, that will be an interesting issue because that's important. But, you know, some Canadians will say, okay, that plays out when we hear rail blockades or what we saw with the wet Sowetna over, over pipeline issues. How do those issues play out? Because we will see that there's going to be economic development and, and within Indigenous communities and Indigenous nations, there are, like in any community, a multiplicity of views. And, and that's exactly it. There are a multiplicity of views and we have to get to that place. I mean, you know, I don't know that it's the greatest analogy, but you can take other places where, you know, the actions of the federal or the provincial government, right, are not uniformly accepted by the population, whatever that population is. That's why we have multiple parties in the House of Commons. That's why there's multiple viewpoints. This is a democracy and this tendency, I think, to um, almost criminalize or demonize the First Nations who say, hold up, like, I don't agree with this, and then, oh, but we're doing so much for you. Like, th that's not okay. I mean, it, it shouldn't be Disneyfied. It shouldn't be reduced to, you know, every single Indigenous community in Canada must feel the same way. That, that's ridiculous. The government needs to get better, I think, though, at anticipating the problems and building the relationships strong and tenable relationships with First Nations communities that transcend politics. Yeah, and mm -hmm. finally, Bob, the other issue, I, I, we got to talk about the, the papal visit, just we should mention it, because um, there was a visit with the Pope in December, it was postponed obviously due to Omicron, there's some hope that the Pope might come here and issue some kind of formal apology, the Catholic Church had a reckoning on their roles and responsibilities with the residential institutions. Uh, those are issues that are going to play out, and there will be big issues politically in, in the new year. Look. Uh, the Catholic Church owes the First Nations people apology. It shouldn't be us going to uh, the Vatican. It should be the Pope coming to uh, the, uh, one of the communities where there are buried bodies and apologizing for the harm that they did to these people and the deaths that were caused and, and the abuse that they suffered. And I would hope that the, the Pope will do so. All right, I, I got to leave it there. This is going to be another important year on that. Perry Belgard, first of all, great to see you. Hope you and your loved ones are doing well in the new year. Uh, thanks for joining us. Come back anytime. Well. Forest fires, historic flighting, heat waves, the effects of climate change, climate chaos being felt across the country, no more so than in the province of BC, still recovering from those horrific floods. But this is hard to ignore now for any politician, in any party? How does the federal government, how does any political party balance the need to reduce emissions while remaining cognizant of Canada's place as an energy producing nation? Canada's carbon price increase kicked in yesterday going from $40 a ton to $50 a ton. What innovations need to happen in both the public and private sectors to move the green transition forward? To talk about the politics of climate 
the scrum returns for a fourth round. The Globe and Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief Bob Fife is back, so is the Toronto Star reporter Stephanie Levitz. And our special guest for this round is our friend Michael Bernstein, the Executive Director of Clean Prosperity, a nonprofit that works towards market-based solutions to climate change. They are nonpartisan. Uh, Michael, great to have you here. Hope you and your loved ones are well, and Happy New Year. Um, climate file was big in 2021. You had the Paris Climate Accord. We had a federal election, frankly, for the first time ever every major political party had a price on carbon, which was significant. What is the most challenging aspect of the climate file in 2022? I think next year is the year things really start to get real. We have to make major progress against our emissions goals. We've done all the talking. We put the words on paper. Now policies have to be put into action. And that's going to be no easy feat. We're talking about policies like zeroing out emissions from our electricity grid, by 2035, we're talking about banning the sale of all new fossil fuel cars by 2035, capping emissions in the oil and gas sector. So these are going to require really, uh, really smart policy design. We have to work with industry, work with provinces, indigenous peoples, and figure out how we get that balance right. Uh, all while remembering that, look, this, this goal we've set for 2030, which is quickly approaching, is kind of like cramming for a midterm exam. It's really important, but the ultimate goal is how are we going to get to zero emissions in our economy over the next several decades? Yeah, and, and Steph, sure, the price uh, of carbon increased $50 a ton now that we're in 2022. There's a promise to end fossil fuel subsidies by the end of 2022. Michael's outlined some of the other goals, but then you got the report from the Environment Commissioner saying Canada's the worst among the G7 nations in reducing emissions. So what does that say? It says that, you know, this is the problem that's bedeviled the Liberal government since they first came to power, which, you know, can they walk and, and, and chew gum at the same time on the environment file, support the oil and gas sector, which is a key driver in the Canadian economy, but also meet emissions targets. And I think what you're seeing, to, you're starting to see, rather, is, you know, the oil and gas community is itself coming on side and trying to find ways to lessen its own emissions problem. But, you know, the branding, the image, Canada's tar sands, the oil sands, the damage that they're doing is a hard one to shake. And so, you know, think about the paper straw debate, Evan. Think about how all of a sudden, you know, thanks to some plucky folks, that this idea that we were using plastic disposable straws and the environmental havoc they were creating became a movement. And you saw corporate social responsibility take hold and everybody started using paper straws. Does that have a measurable impact on the environment? Probably. But is it also something tangible Canadians feel that they can do to make a difference. And that's one of the, I think, the, the most challenging political drivers on the climate change file is to bring Canadians along. And then, and then Bob, there's politically, this is all gonna fall, a lot of it on the new uh, Minister of the Environment, Mr. Guibault. He's very divisive in Alberta. We talked about an energy transition and a cap on, on, on emissions there. And Jonathan Wilkinson, the former Environment Minister, now the uh, Natural Resource Minister. How do they actually come through and do what Michael's talking about and get a practical plan in place without having a very divisive debate with provinces like Alberta? Well, uh, look, that's what we're not hearing from the government very much, are practical big solutions to uh, the climate crisis in this country. For example, 51% of homes are heated by natural gas, 45% uh, by electricity, 3.8% from home heating oil. We've got to move that to electricity. But to do that, we need to have more electricity. We need an uh, electrical grid. We need to take Manitoba power, for example, and get, uh, get it uh, coming into Ontario. 
Uh, the Liberals many years ago under Ignatieff had talked about a national electrical grid. That's something that we could do. Michael, pick up on that because there's going to be debates of what qualifies in terms of this transition. For example, do, does liquefied natural gas qualify as a green transition? So does the government invest in that as they've done in British Columbia? Uh, there's talk about nuclear energy, green or not green. A lot of folks don't know what the future looks like. Yeah, I think what's really important here is that we focus on emissions reductions and we don't take uh, tools off the table and we don't become ideological about things. What we're trying to do is reduce our emissions in a very short period of time and do it in a way that protects jobs, that preserves competitiveness, that hopefully expands our economy. And the reality is, if we do this properly, this actually is a good news story for Canadians as a whole doesn't mean there aren't going to be challenges along the way for certain people, certain places, but renewable energy is now lower cost than fossil energy, for example. So we do have an opportunity to generate uh, more affordable energy costs for Canadians to clean up our air, for example. Um, but of course, we have to do that in partnership. I think some of the things Bob has talked about are on paper now, but they have to be put into practice uh, in the near term. But Steph, the, the political debate that you'll see, look at the United States, fuel prices are high, oil prices are high, and then the U.S. is buying oil from Saudi Arabia. By the way, Canada in the East Coast buys it, you know, from Russia, Saudi Arabia as well. We're importing oil. And, and, and the opposition will say to the liberals, you got to, for the next 20 years in this so-called transition, you still got to get the U.S. to buy more Canadian oil because it's better than buying from other regions. How do they calibrate that debate? It's a tricky one, right? I mean, the, the political arguments around oil and gas, who shops from who, dirty oil, clean oil, you know, sometimes it boils down to the issue of refinery capacity. We can talk about, you know, the pipeline debate, right, which is still not settled, and where should we build pipelines? Can we build pipelines? There, there's a lot wrapped into that. I mean, even take, you know, on the electric vehicles issue with the Canada-U.S. relationship over that alone, right. right? They're trying to stimulate electric vehicle production. Is it a violation of North American free trade deal? Um, there is the argument to be made that there has to be a continent-wide, if not global-wide, agreement on some of these things. But as long as the, the countries that you know, are in the oil buying market and the oil producing market, but the oil buying market need to buy the oil, they're going to go where it's cheapest and where they can get it quick. Yeah, Bob, in, and then there's what we saw in British Columbia, the heat waves, the fires that burned down Lytton horrifically the floods, the mudslides that happened. Five billion dollars allocated for just disaster mitigation in the uh, fiscal update in December for British Columbia. In other words, climate chaos is no longer theoretical. People are, it's playing out. Does that have a material impact on the political debate about getting this done quickly? Well, I think it does. Uh, sir, uh, whether whether uh, some of the politicians, uh, you know, the conservatives are still not there on the environment. But the other parties are, and, I, and frankly, I think the Canadian public is there too because of these uh, climate disasters that we're seeing. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, we have big problems here because uh, China and India and Russia are not willing to step up to the plate and do more. And that is a major problem for the world. But we still, leave that all aside, we still have to... Uh, we have to do our part. Okay, Michael Bernstein from Clean Prosperity, great to have you here. Uh there is an old rule in politics. People will predict everything but the future. Still, 
We do have a political radar screen on what to watch for in the new year. What will the biggest issues be? Will there be new leaders? Can Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole hold on to his job? What about Premiers like Jason Kenney? Will, uh, who's facing very plummeting poll numbers. And what are the issues that will define this year? Will it be China, U.S. protectionism? What is on the radar screen? Back for the last round is the scrum. Bob Fife, the Globe and Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief, the Toronto Star's Stephanie Levitz is back. And our final guest on this special edition of Question Period is the former NDP leader and now the CTV political commentator, Tom Mulcair. Tom, happy new year to you and yours. All the best uh, to you and your family as well, Evan. Okay, and Bob and Steph and Tom. Tom, um, what do you look at, what do you believe will be the stories that you're watching for that may be defining 2022 politically? Well, politically, I think that the pandemic, which, by the way, next month, early February, starts the third year of this pandemic, we don't even realize that sometimes, is going to continue to be big news. It'll dominate. So how the provincial premiers react to it, how Mr. Trudeau tries to give right. the best advice best and best practices, that's still going to be in the news every day. Dare I say that we're still in a minority government situation and Parliament could fall at any time, either because the Liberals decide to go to an election or because they're, they're beaten on a confidence vote. So that's always going to be in the news. I also think that Mr. Trudeau himself might be giving some consideration to whether or not he sticks around for that election. I know in, in your great interview with him, he of course said, of course he's sticking around. What else could he possibly say? But when you see the number of times that he brings out Christia Freeland and does everything he can to put her uh, out front and center. You know, the Liberals of the five parties in Parliament, the Liberals are the only ones who have never had a woman leader. Okay, Steph, what's on your political radar screen is, uh, and let's look at outside of Canada that may define. Uh, the, the relationship with the U.S. is fraught with U.S. protectionism. Obviously, China, the two Michaels are home, but you have the Beijing Olympics coming, and the China issue looms large. Yeah, I would say that, you know, the Beijing Olympics is going to be something that's going to kick off the year and set perhaps like a bit of a diplomatic tone for how the, the global community intends to work together going forward on China. I mean, we, we can argue about the validity or the necessity or the, the messaging or the reality of a boycott um, and whether that, you know, what that achieves full stop. But I think, you know, closer to home for sure, the Canada-U.S. trade war that appears to still be looming um, with U.S. taking protectionism measures, we have this electric vehicle issue that remains, you know, quite live in that dynamic. And, you know, as the U.S. and Joe Biden sort of starts to pivot towards his next political legacy, we have looking at the liberal polit political legacy here at home. Whether or not Justin Trudeau, you know, lives to fight the next election, the Liberal Party now needs to start considering a future without Justin Trudeau. Okay, Bob, what's on your radar screen? Well, I do think the... Uh prospect of a trade war with the United States that is looming and it is very dangerous for the Canadian economy. The Canadian government has threatened to, uh, if the Americans go ahead with a $12,000 um, grant, if you buy electric vehicle only manufactured in the United States, Canada will respond with uh, uh, duties on uh, American auto parts uh, as well as abrogating the uh, dairy provisions in the new uh, NAFTA agreement. Uh, and, the and the digital uh, uh, copyright uh, provisions that were part of the new agreement, that is going to cause a, a, a lot of hardship for, for Canada because we are a much smaller economy and we're much more dependent on the United States. Add that to the pa pandemic and the economic effects that's having on the economy and inflation, it could be a very, very bad 
uh, situation for the economy. Let's hope it's not like that. In terms of Mr. Trudeau, I don't think he's going to be around. Uh, he, I think he is setting up uh, Krista Freeland. Uh, she's already, somebody's already working on an autobiography of her that kind of tells you a lot. Um, you know, he's been a leader of the Liberal Party for eight years, six years as Prime Minister. Uh, by the time an election is called in, you know, say, two years' time, uh, you know, people are going to be pretty fed up with him. Uh, and I think he understands that would be not a wise idea to try to uh, win a fourth election campaign. Yeah. Oh, you know, Bob, you've been around. You know how easy it is for people to let go of power. Hashtag never easy. Uh, but we'll find out about that. Uh, Tom, uh, another big challenge, Quebec. Uh, at the end of the year, this was not a bug in Bill 21, the secularization law. This is a feature of it, which is if you are wearing a religious garb like a hijab, a kippah, or, or, or any religious garb and you're employed by the province, you're going to lose your job. And then a grade three teacher in Chelsea, Quebec, across the river from where uh, we broadcast, lost her job. And suddenly now, it's been a question to all the federal leaders, will you challenge Quebec on this? And they, don't, they know it's politically toxic, but is it morally imperative that they do something? Singh finally, you know, dug in his heels and said he would fight Bill 21, which is all to his credit. Trudeau is still stalling on referring it to the Supreme Court. There's only one person in Canada who can actually do something about getting rid of all of the different procedures that are going on right now and leaving so many people with uncertainty as to whether or not they have to leave Quebec, whether they're going to lose their jobs, whether they can be hired. That's Justin Trudeau. He can make what's called a reference case to the Supreme Court. It's going to wind up in the Supreme Court one way or another. So why keep going with all of these various procedures? Send it straight to the Supreme Court and let the chips fall where they may. There is the notwithstanding clause that, according to the first decision, protects some of these discriminatory uh, provisions within uh, Bill 21. At the same time, freedom of religion, like freedom of speech, it existed long before the Charter. And you know what, Evan? Next April will mark the 40th anniversary of the Charter of Rights, and you can be sure that Mr. Trudeau and other leaders will stand up and orate about the importance of the Charter of Rights. Well, it has to be a living document. It can't just be allowed to wither on the vine. So give it some life and make sure that we apply it to make sure that people are allowed to have their rights respected. There shouldn't be Ontario rights and Quebec rights. We're supposed to all be Canadians. I should say that while Jagmeet Singh has signaled that maybe their position will evolve, Alexandre Boudris, his Quebec lieutenant, and basically his voice in Quebec, has said, oh yeah, we're not doing that. So they got to figure that out. Uh, Steph, political future, does Aaron O'Toole survive the challenges to his leadership in 2022? Does Jason Kenney or Doug Ford, they are, they are going to face uh, political crossroads elections in Ontario. What do they do? What are you looking for there? So Aaron O'Toole, I mean, off the top, what I find, you know, remarkable even in the waning days of 2021 was watching some of his caucus come out against Bill 21. If there's a political party that's been a greater hypocrite on this file than the Conservatives, I don't know there is one. I mean, they, are, they claim to be the party of religious freedom. They are yelling religious freedom from the rafters all the time. And they won't go to the mattresses on this one. And so I found that really interesting because the, the crux of the issue with Aaron O'Toole and his caucus and his party is they believe he has abandoned conservative principles. And so he's got a challenge ahead of him to convince them otherwise. And he remains under pressure to move up this leadership review. Um, right now, you know, there's supposed to be one at the next convention. That's 2023. There's a petition, of course, suggesting there ought to be otherwise. But even absent the petition, um, you know, should he not just rip off the Band-Aid, call one now and, and let this issue 
fade into the distance. Yeah, and, and Bob, just jump in on that and, and, and refract that maybe for Jason Kenney, who's facing plummeting poll numbers, but, you know, he's nothing but a political survivor. Can he? Well, he's in serious political uh, trouble for sure. Uh, his, uh, his supporters, um, he's lost a lot of support within the U UPC. And, uh, they, I mean, can you imagine the NDP are way ahead in Alberta, and that's a, 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 so he's in trouble, and he's got uh, 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 somebody nipping at his his heels. Uh, who, uh, and I've just forgot Brian Jean. Brian Jean's Brian Brian last Brian, name. Yeah. Brian Jean is uh, is going after him very hard. Uh, I think Jason Kenney may be able to survive because he's a pretty crafty political uh, operator, but he's in big trouble, and he very well might not either. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet any money on it. All right, it's going to be a busy year. Let's hope we can get out of our houses and uh, everyone's safe. Uh, Bob Fife, Stephanie Levitz, Tom Walker. First of all, three of you, great to have you here. I know we've done a lot of work together in the last year. I look forward to working together and hearing from the three of you and your insights in the year to come. Stay safe. The pandemic may not be over, but we hope for better days ahead. So happy new year to everyone. Thanks for taking a peek ahead into 2022. Fingers crossed it's a better year than 2021. We will be back here in seven short days. Take care, hug your loved ones, and we'll see you soon.